With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And of course, as it is this time each week, it's time to catch up with Marty for Media Matters. Marty Gibson, good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I am very good. I've had a very eventful uh, week since we last spoke. And I want to start actually with a, a thank you and share the experiences of our week. And my husband, uh, Mr. Marie, had a wee medical event last Thursday. It spooked me greatly. And it was a medical event that was to the point it warranted a an ambulance to be called and a trip to ED. I firstly want to huge thank you to the team from St. John who arrived in a very timely manner and triaged beautifully and then got us very promptly to ED and the team at Hawke's Bay Memorial Hospital ED who were just wonderful. Now, before everybody worries, Mr. Marie is just tickety-boo. It was a very, very unexpected event, let's put it this way, but I am pleased to say he's back to 100% and everything is great. One of the things that I just wanted to share with people, and I think when you have been in the trenches, particularly in on the nat, the non-COVID vaccine trench for a really long time, which Mr. Marie and I are, that when you go in and medical histories and stuff are taken, you, I mean, you instantly want to bristle. I have to say a huge ups to both uh, the ED doctor and the medical registrar, and his vaccination status was asked in both cases, just as part of routine. So it wasn't a pointed out thing. It was just part of routine questioning. And in both cases, it was like, okay, and they moved on. It wasn't laboured. It wasn't, uh, there was no uh, judgment being passed, not visibly, at least to us. It was just, okay, box ticks moved on and they carried on. And, uh, And I just thought, this is as it should be. Actually, to me, I saw this as a as a really positive thing. So a huge thank you to all of them and the team there because they, they really did look after him and he's now back to Box of Fluffy Ducks and, and uh, back to his usual self. But yeah, it was certainly something that I wasn't expecting and he certainly wasn't expecting, but there you go. Every now and then you need to use the system and it's nice to know that when you need it, the system does actually still work. So Yeah. Oh, it's great that all's well that ends well, eh? It is all well that ends well, but you know I, I, we can't say that for everybody. There's been a lot of tragedy this last week. I mean, Afiso Collins last yeah. week, and then and a couple of school principals passing well be- before their time. It's a bit like when you start sliding down the hill on a uh, on a toboggan, isn't it? You get that feeling of building acceleration, and mm. um, get that hollow feeling in you in the pit of your stomach that this is is going to be a year that brings if we plot the acceleration in these kind of stories it's going to bring a, a lot of sorrow for a lot of families and it's terribly sad people i know who've who've died of runaway cancer in the last month my age or younger mm. and how i felt on thursday dying a thousand deaths until we got the diagnosis, because of course, you know, your mind runs away with you and how, how I felt just in that short period of time. Mm. And then how these families must feel the carnage, you know, because for, for every single person lost, it's a family left grieving and there's a lot of grief out there at the moment. And it, 
Yeah, and I just kept having this, you know, the saying roll through my mind again and again and again and again. And, you know, there are none so blind that those that will not see. And I just hope finally that potentially with um, some of the data coming out and the submissions for the COVID inquiry and the importance of if you have a story to share, if you have something around the COVID response that you feel that you must share, do so because they need that data in order to form a picture. Because at the moment, there are none so blind that those that will not see. And and this inquiry is there to hopefully collate all that information into one place. Did you see there is a top doctor, um, Dr. Boz, I think she's called. Uh, she's uh, She's been very, very pro uh, the COVID response. She's got 600,000 plus yeah. uh, followers. And she took the recent paper that McCullough was a co-editor on in regards to the vaccine, the testing, all the forms yeah. that were in there. And she was literally waking up in real time in Incredible. that video. It's like uh, Fred Hoyle, the great uh, cosmologist, coined the phrase the Big Bang to mock that theory. And then some data came back and he realised that it pointed to it being correct in some ways, and formally renounced his adherence to his original idea that had just always been there. And that's that's the science that we've mm-hmm. got to trust, that ability to realise that the evidence doesn't point to the hypothesis being correct, and without any ego being able to just walk away from it and say, all right, let's uh, start again. That's the science I trust not trusting the theory no matter what. And, you know, just thinking as you were saying that, I guess a lot of these people are really hanging on to, and like the Michael Baker saying, we we saved 7,000 lives, whatever you're saying. A lot of those people are probably thinking, man, if maybe, you know, if they know that they've got it wrong, but they can't walk away from it, maybe they're thinking, gosh, what would I do to people who had done this? And I think we've got to, to avoid that fishtail I talk about sometimes. Mm, we've got to be a bit gentle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lo- another person, Lawrence Vanderpost, said uh, he wrote a book because he spent a lot of time in, um, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he observed that people who were actually in the camps were a lot l- less vengeful toward the Japanese than the people who came into it and saw what they'd done. And he thought that was because the people who were there realized that they were in the thrall of some kind of, well, mass formation psychosis, I guess, although he didn't use that word. And so we've got, you know, we've got to allow for that as well. Mm, Most definitely. As the week has gone on, I've seen a number of things where that phrase just keeps coming again. I mean, here's a random one. And this is something that you've probably not pegged because you don't follow the rugby, uh, but there was quite a hoo-ha. My parents were telling me about it. My dad was rather annoyed because he watched some super rugby on the weekend and there were some players. Um, there's these new mouth guards. I didn't know they were a thing, but there's these new mouth guards that have been mandated by World Rugby for senior players and apparently they've got sensors in them that can detect collisions Shock. for yeah for head yep. injuries, right? So they've now been mandated and some players 
were playing trucking along. I think Anton Leonard Brown was one of them. And anyway, he'd been sent off because the sensor and mouth guard said that he needed to go off for an assessment. He had to go off, have the assessment, and then he got put back on again. And he was just like, why are you sending me off? I haven't had a knock. Anywho, I was listening to Rob Nicholl, who is the uh, New Zealand Rugby Players Association spokesperson. And he was talking about these mouth guards and the entire process and what was going on. His frustration was, and and he used words to this effect, on how players are losing trust in the technology because the technology hadn't been tested effectively enough. And whilst what they were hoping to prevent with the technology was good and noble, because they hadn't tested it enough and it wasn't working effectively in reality, once they were trying it on the field, that players were actually losing trust. And they, as an association, have been trying to say to World Rugby, there are issues here, you need to stop it, we need to test it more in real-world conditions or actually look at the data before we mandate this across all of rugby. (laughs) And I was sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, the irony. There are none so blind that those who who will not see. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing when you're unaffected. And by interesting, I mean terrifying. Mm. (laughs) Because it's the sort of thing you read about and you think, well, how does that work? And then you can see it in, as you say, real time and think, oh, that's how it works. And this could be very dangerous as it's always been very dangerous every single time it's happened. And then you have sort of, as you said, that mass formation blindness. Then you have willful blindness. And then you just have good old-fashioned gaslighting. It's always the cover-up. And Jan Tanetti, bless her wee cotton socks, Jan Tanetti is an absolute master of this art form. In a discussion with Hosking around the halting of education projects, which has created quite the stir this week. And it, as it turns out, as it turns out, whilst she says that they were costed fully, no, they were costed to certain stages. And then many of these projects weren't costed beyond certain stages. They were essentially going to be borrowing money in order to pay for it. He's them. such a paper tiger, though, isn't he, Hosking? He'll sort of, well, and, you know, put on his. Grandpa Simpson as a younger man act and and then, you know, someone will give some slippery political bullshit and he'll say, oh, well, you've explained that quite well or just move yeah. on. Well, Tanetti, though, I mean, bless a little heart when he was trying to press her on the fact that, yeah, but Jan, you're going to pay with, with these improvements with borrowed money. Can't print it or you're going to borrow it. Her response was, we're not up to our ears in debt and I'm very proud of the of our fiscal record. A little bit of that here and there in the paper, wasn't there? Just 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 a tart. Where do you want to start with some of that? Because I know you pulled start? out you pulled out a lot and um and we concurred on 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 a lot. There was definitely a lot of that in terms of measurement, responsibility, or lack thereof. I thought the best thing I read in the papers over the weekend anyway was uh, Stephen Joyce. His assessment of the child poverty issue was spot on and contained a lot of things that we've actually been saying over the past 10 months or however long we've been sitting here. He basically cautioned against announcing things and the media taking announcing things as the same as doing them, and much the same as the media always take what uh, computer models are going to say about climate change as it's going to happen and write headlines about it. It's a a pretty consistent problem for them. He 
said, and we now know the recipe for solving child poverty was clearly wrong. Leaving more families dependent on benefits is a case of misplaced kindness, which is not a path to reducing child poverty. High inflation and out-of-control government spending always hurts those on the bottom rungs of society the most. You and I both went through a lot of highlighter on this, didn't we? We both um, went a tremendous amount of highlighter on There's no getting away from the fact that there is a large group of families who are so marginalised from society as we know it that they are unable to lift themselves sufficiently to becoming functioning participants in the society, that society. And when I read that, I thought about the Mungra Mob's uh, presence on TV screens recently and particularly that olient little doughboy, Rawari Waititi, basically was on saying, this is your third warning, in a very menacing way, you know? If they threaten tino rangatiratanga of Māori, there will be uh, severe consequences. And that's the whole thing where a lot of these flabby, skinny-armed little Māori leaders with their pot tummies really do think of gangs as their shock troops. And that's disgusting. The fact that they can't separate being a criminal scumbag, not that all gang gang members are criminal scumbags, but the prevalence rate's a fair bit higher, that they're just a hogtied to being Māori is a big part of the problem. And also, too, the fact that he believes that being in a gang is actually part of their tenoranga teratanga. I mean, I can see the tribal element. Yeah, there's a thread there that goes back into Māori culture. Yeah. Of might is right, of bullying, of violence. That sort of thing that they won't face because, like anyone who's doing the work, you know, anyone who's doing the work to improve themselves, when you start casting aside the bits of yourself that aren't aren't worthy, there's a moment where you get a bit of vertigo and think, by God, by the time I finish this, is there going to be anything left of me? Mm. But you've got to push through it. Look, it just reminds me very much of a story that I know firsthand through someone here. And there is a grandmother raising a grandchild. She took the, the child from her daughter, who was in a relationship with a senior gang leader here in the Bay. This child had both neurodevelopmental and physical disabilities, so required a lot of help and intervention medically and was not getting that with mum because mum just wasn't interested. So she took this this boy as a, as a toddler out of that home into her home and with her and her mother, so the boy's, the baby's great-grandmother, they set about working on um, making sure that he got the help that he needed. And they did this for a number of years. And the hospital, so they got, got, got them to hospital appointments and surgery required and all sorts of bits and pieces. So they were looking after their own, doing a really admirable job. After a, a year or two, the social worker which they interacted with at the hospital had cottoned on that it was Nana raising this little tacker, essentially said, look, you have been the primary caregiver for this child for a really long time. You should be receiving benefit support as the guardian of this child. So went round to organise support for Nana and said, look, we're going to give you a little bit extra financial support because you're entitled to it. You've been raising this child. We'll do that. Well, what a can of worms that opened. By doing that and that support being given to Nana, it actually meant that it cut off the support the mother had been receiving the entire time for that child. Yep. Even though she wasn't looking at it. 
Nick Minute, the gang member boyfriend plus uh, extras, as well as the daughter, come round in the front lawn screaming match to, to her mother, demanding to get the child back because, and I quote, how dare you steal my urn? Yeah. Well, that's what we're up against, yeah. I've got a, a great friend who um, was the head of Age Concern down in Gisborne. The stories she would tell me about this kind of thing, the sort of elder abuse that comes with addiction and gang membership, it's uh, heartbreaking. And it exists under the surface. Most people have got no idea. And it makes the characterization of looking at the way the benefits are being allocated by attention-seeking politicians on the left, even more disgusting. Mm. I mean, you know, we can keep going through Stephen Joyce's column about some of the things that he saw in his time uh, working in that space where he was talking about Northland had stubbornly high unemployment, and so MPI's Ben Dalton was dispatched to see what they could do. And anyway, they rang all the big employment employers in the area to ask what it would take for them to take on more staff. And their answers floored him. They would all take on more people tomorrow if they could find them. And in a region with high recorded unemployment, what followed was a journey of discovery. Finding a group of disengaged young people, matching them with employers prepared to take them on, putting them through an intensive job and life skills training program, and micromanaging their lives for six months via a patient but firm wrangler, ex-netballer called Joe. And this is what I talked about last week on on the political panel. You've got to get rid of that socialist conceit that all people are the same. There are some people on long-term benefits who are very capable, very bright, and are in the position on the cycle of contemplation where they're ready to change. You've got to hook them out first because they're the low-hanging fruit. There are some people it's going to it's going to be harder. But with that idea, well, everyone's equal in equity and equity, it, it goes against that, doesn't it? Mm, it does. And it also ties back in as well with the column last week with Paula Bennett when she was talking about the Encarro, um, the truancy officer, who was literally yeah. going around to getting these kids out of bed and getting them to school. It's exactly the same thing. It's it's having somebody there with the motivation and the support to be able to do those things. And, and it's looking at, and I love the fact that Joyce did that, you know, it's actually the problem is not what you think the problem might be. We've had multiple jobs go in the industrial unit. It's part of the business that I'm involved with. And Mm -hmm. we get a lot of these younger ones come in, fill out job applications. So they come in and they'll fill out an application and the person accepting it will sign a thing to say that they've been looking for work. But uh, one of the problems, of course, is because we work in the industrial space and we've got machinery and stuff as part of our work safe commitments, we we do do um, and we have done random drug testing. Mm. A lot of them, that just instantly, the minute they see that, they just, oh, no. And that's where you've got work safe on one hand and trying to keep think people safe and, and something that is an absolute deterrent on another. And all they say is, oh, I'll fail that. So I'll fail that. So I won't bother. Mm. I mean, yeah, get, getting drug treatment to people is, is a major part of this and I've said before you know it'd be great to have uh drug treatment camps uh in the hills uh above Gisborne where you may be getting forestry slash turned into charcoal or something like that mm. and multitask a little bit he was also talking about being surprised when a, a health provider wanted to show them an app that reminded their customers of all the commitments they had for meetings because what was happening was 
uh, meetings were often missed, chains broken, and people went to the back of the queue. And I've said that before, you know, you don't need to have a theory where the health system's racist. You just have to kind of look at why so many Maori fail to turn up for appointments. Mm. And, And, you know, you don't need to bring a cultural or race thing in there. Mm. Um, it's it's practical. Oh, totally practical. Totally. And and when you're sort of dealing with a whole bunch of different services too, it's not just one. You know, I mean, like if you've got if there are health issues going on, you've got all those our health appointments. And then if you're in the Ministry of Social Development, well, then you've got all of those appointments. And that's even before you get to Kaying Aurora and appointments yeah. here if you're caught up with housing or inland revenue. I mean, there yeah, was we were so talking about five, uh, six government cars up one driveway. And he he's also saying the coordination of getting several centralised agencies to work together on individual families is huge. And often government agencies are not trusted by families anyway. Mm. Often talk about clutch plates and clutch pads. You know, you need someone to engage and you need someone to have contact. The two different mm. things. One um, of the things he su- suggests here, and it's actually extending that, was at the end, the right person in the right place can make a lot of positive difference. And if we're prepared to empower them to do so, and this will take some time family by family, that suggests a family-centred social investment approach where we can stop worrying about the, what the program is called, stop declaring it must be run by a central government agency and instead back the individuals and organisations who can prove they're getting results. And that's already happening in some community in Marae areas. It's already happening in Pacifica areas. We know that there are people that are already doing this. They've, mm. they've done it off their own back to help their own people. And it's making sure that they are continue to be supported to do that in the first instance, but also to the fact that it just shows you that it's actually even just the basic life skills. Some of these people are just struggling with the challenge challenges of those basic skills because they may have never ever had oh, them. If you talk, I mean, I, I've remember one time talking with a uh, now deceased uh, mob leader. He was talking about going and seeing one of his kids in a in a home, you know, like a, a youth facility. He was saying he saw this roster on the wall with kids' names and jobs, and he said, "Yeah, what's that?" <laughs> and, um, they said, "Oh, well, uh, you know, we um, give them jobs, and and if they've done it, we tick them off." Oh, and I said, "Yeah, hey, um, we should get one of those. We just yell at them." <laughs> you know? and, and but he'd had a few realizations. One of which was, you know, when he found out that his uh, mob brothers who were coming to visit him were molesting his kids, that had quite an impact on him. And he said, you know, it's real aroha, not that bullshit aroha. And I think that's uh, what Māori leaders have got to be brave enough to characterise the bonds that gangs have as bullshit aroha. Mm. And I've talked to another uh, very ferocious, huge, tough, another mob leader. He was, you know, reflecting on when his house burned down. It was his family who he was sort of marginalised from who turned up and gave him a hand and he never saw his, his uh, fellow mobsters that he realised, oh, bullshit mm. aroha. Yeah. And in terms of the gangs, because, of course, they've been in the media this week with the uh, the law in terms of banning gang patches in public spaces. And you and I have talked about this before because, I mean, I'm probably – I don't I don't agree with it. I just don't agree with it. I think it's to me, that is the sort of thing 
that is milking mice, you know, because yeah, a national are, party, su- su- you know, supporter, an older, you know, it's a, it is a, it is a virtue, sig- yeah, it's a virtue yeah. signaling um, move on nationals' part. I read it now. Again, not to say that you and I are supportive of gangs, but to me, it's that whole barn door. And I mean, look, if it's then what defines a gang? What defines a gang? I mean, mm. are you then going to say, because it only takes one person or one activist or one ally within that political space that then all of a sudden redefines a gang outside of black power and jungle yeah. mob and camoncheros and, and whatever else, headhunters and whoever Voices else. freedom. Yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, do we then say, oh no, you can't wear a kefir anymore now because that's actually representative yeah. of support for Hamas, or you can't wear a Star of David because you're actually a Zionist, and you're, so, you know, what I mean? Like, where do you draw that line? And well, I think you know, there's plenty they can do before they get around to that. I got a, uh, a an outrage text from a very dear friend of mine who was a, a very prominent policeman and local body politician down in Gisborne who was incensed when he read this article about a couple of tourists. One of them got their bike stolen by the mob down in Wairau and the cops were too scared to go and confront them and get it back. His text read, those cops should be charged for cowardice. They don't deserve to be in the job. Gutless pricks. And, uh, why didn't police do a search warrant, seize and recover the stolen bike and interview the occupants of the property? I think everyone knows the reason why. So, you know, he said he's seeing a lot of this and hearing a lot of it through the grapevine. A mate who was married to a judge told me a cell phone t- was taken from a victim in, at gunpoint, traces it online to an address, contacts police. The police say they cannot do anything. Is search not verified or some other bullshit. Victim then traces it uh, to a repair shop and recovers it, an aggravated robbery, and they will not act. Mitchell needs to be questioned about that. And so police, Kyle, was being interviewed about this and whether cops were going to go and seize jackets. If they can't go and arrest someone for stealing a motorbike, they're not going to get into a scrap and take someone's patch. They don't have the stones. I had a job when I first got here, uh, contracted to the council, fixing things in uh, parks. And one of my uh, jobs during that time was to go up and knock on the door of a, of a mob pad and say, I say, chaps, um, do you mind getting your uh, your cars out of that park so I can put the bollard back that you've taken out? And, you know, I was thinking as I was walking up the drive and keeping a wary eye on the pit bulls, man, I, my hourly rate for doing this is uh, is quite low. See, I would have put the bollards back in and trapped the cars on the other side, but that's just me. Well, yeah, I uh, I wasn't. I was I was told to ask them to get it out, so I I did it. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. No, but they did it. You know, all yeah. great. I didn't get punched or anything. The other thing that Cahill said in that interview as well was just looking. And I mean, this is where I agree with them. I actually think getting police. I mean, it's one thing putting something in place; it's another thing enforcing it. Right? I think having police going around, running around and trying either giving out fines or taking vests of gang members is a gross waste of their time. I'd much rather that they be working to actually look how on earth they could afford the $65,000 Harley. Or on the weekend, I saw a very smart-looking Bentley drive past, and then I was like, oh, that's a smart-looking car. And then I look inside and see the patch gang member with their partner and their children looking very excited in the back, thinking, hmm, 
Okay, so either they've won Lotto, because to be fair, we have just had a Hawke's Bay millionaire, so they could have, or they've got the Proceeds of Crimes Act. I, yeah. Why don't they put their energies there and actually strip those assets away? Why aren't they, you know, there's so many other things that they could be doing. I mean, well, as I said, they should be cracking down on prospecting. Yes. Prospecting should be illegal. You know, to, to pull kids into a, into into gang life and get you know, if a child's committing crimes and it can be traced back to a gang affiliation, that should come with severe consequences. And yeah, that would be the trigger to go right through the assets that are held by those members and audit the origins. And, and if there's not a satisfactory explanation, they should be uh, seized. Uh, also, they should. Um, uh, have very severe consequences, as I've said before, for anyone who intimidates someone for leaving a gang. And that would probably be the smartest thing Luxon could do, would be to say, hey, look, we're going to declare an amnesty on people wanting to leave gangs. If you want to leave a gang, we're happy to, you know, we've got these uh, camps where you can get rid of Slash, have a bit of time in the bush, have some drug treatment, uh, maybe have a bit of psychological care. We'll start going back through that. But Leave it behind. And anyone who intimidates you, we're going to throw the book at. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, I just think back to all these, as I said, all these conversations I've had with gang members over the years. I remember talking to another guy who was talking about how, you know, they'd get the young prospects to bring their girlfriends around, slip them a bit of pee, and then they're all having a go at her. You know, so we all got outraged about roast busters preying on these upper-middle-class girls. Roast busters happens every single week in every gang pad, in mm. so many of them all over the country. The amount of misery those guys cause and and perpetuate that they've experienced themselves. You've got to keep that compassionate angle. And that way I think you'd have more buy-in from Māori because much as they don't like being disloyal to other Māori because they feel they're up against it, I think they would be pretty happy to be uncoupled from that kind of dysfunction. And if you really hold it in their face, hey, you know, the elders are getting abused, the young people are getting corrupted, the young people are getting raped. Yeah. You know, it, it's not hard to walk away from it, including exactly. for gang members. Exactly to that point. I'd much rather see money spent that if you've got a young gang member who's walked away and they're trying, so for, they, and I've seen it with um, people in businesses that I've worked with that who've been employed, starting a family will often do it because they don't want their life for their children. But so many of them now have these tattoos on the cheek tattoos and their neck tattoos. So if you're going to strip that patch away off their back, it doesn't matter, they're wearing that patch on their skin. Okay, mm -hmm. I'd much rather see that money spent if you've got somebody who is making an effort to walk away from that gang, as you said, not be intimidated and actually have tattoo removal. So then that person can re-enter society, get themselves some work and actually make something happen. Well, maybe, you know, just like because it's quite hard to remove them, maybe just tattoo a big love heart on their face so you can say, hey, that guy's really turned around. You know? Yes. Just an idea. Just an idea. It is going to be one of those things that's certainly going to be a watch the space um, over the next little bit. One of the things that was rather interesting, I thought, was the fact that, you know, Luxon is very focused on his 100-day plan, which is wonderful, and he's really doing that. Vernon Small, however... So one of the things that you and I have looked at is in terms of how things are moving, and, and it's not looking great for, for the Labour Party. And one of the things that Vernon brought up in his article was how he was like, poor Labour, 
poor Labour, it's a bit mean that everyone's been mean to them because all of these things are being rolled back by National that really didn't get a chance to get started because they happened so late in the second half of the um, 2020 term. And the reason for that was the handbrake applied by Winston Peters in Term 1, 27 to 2020. But it's interesting, um, Christopher Luxon doesn't seem to be suffering from the same uh, handbrake issues. Not yet. <laughs> potentially. But, uh, where is Vernon Small? He's on the back of Tracy Watkins. Don't you love it? We are, we're old school. We still do it with actual newspaper people. It's um, it's tragic, really. So he is. So, so he is, yeah, yeah, which I took me ages to find him too, and it's because he's on the arse end of Tracy. I mean, you know, Vernon Small always strikes me as being like Wayne Brown's less successful, embittered socialist brother. You know, there's a, a visual for you. Yeah, just like you have to. I mean, there's that whole if you if you're not a Tory when you're old, you don't have a brain kind of uh, uh, problem. But he 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 looks like he might have uh, had a few moments of clarity, realizing that uh, the new woke Labour isn't the same as even Michael Cullen and Helen Clark's Labour, that it took quite a nasty turn. And maybe he's even starting to realise that all the borrowed the money that Robbo borrowed has uh, actually made a whole lot of rich people richer and hasn't really sort of done what it was meant to do. He sort of, yeah, said 36 more children were living in poverty as of June 2023 when reducing child poverty was one of the party's key targets and a mantra for former leader Jacinda Ardern. Actually, we revisited that theory this morning that mm. I think uh, the Ardern government was a nationally scaled case of Munchausen by proxy. It was a pathology about it. And if you read the s- symptoms of it, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a mental health disorder in which a caregiver, most often a mother, routinely makes up fake symptoms or causes real symptoms in a child or adult victim to make it appear that the victim has a true physical or mental health issue. These actions are typically a result of maladaptive disorder or excessive attention-seeking by the caregiver. It's uh, quite canny. I mean, you know, as we've discussed before, about 12% of the population has some sort of cluster B personality disorder, Mm. and people with narcissistic personality disorder are drawn to things like politics and media, and interestingly, medicine and martial arts. Uh, the fact that we don't have a, a conscious way of weeding these people out of such positions before they gain a dangerous amount of power over us, um, I think it's inevitably meant that they actually have it. They have a dangerous amount of power I mean, over us. Thirty-six thousand is a lot of children, and you know, I mean, she was the she was the minister for children. Well, she couldn't even say poverty. No, well, no, no, no. What did she call it? Relative poverty. It is certainly a card that has been has cropped up with a number of the the columns this week. And yeah, Vernon, he, he's str- I think he's feeling a little bit nostalgic. I mean, you may not have heard uh, Ramesh fully just before, but he, I mean, we talked primarily around the COVID response, but he has written a book called Our Enemy, the Government. You know, and talking about how the COVID response. Um, Must read it. Yeah, has sort of weaponized it, but it's not just the COVID response. The COVID response was the pinnacle of what they've been doing. It's the pinnacle of that Munchausen's. Now, Mm. I'm not saying that they have created the pandemic. No, they did not. But they, what they did do, what they did do, and our dear friend We Squealer did, 
is that he, like so many other leaders, um, printed $20 billion and injected it. COVID was the possum crossing the road. The COVID response was squealer driving off a cliff and into a river of debt to avoid it and still running it over. Yeah. It was quite funny when Vernon Small started saying, the exit of former finance minister Grant Robertson underscores just how much talent and experience the party has lost over the past year or so. I snorted my tea, especially when I started reading the list. The list is well known enough, as well as Robertson and Ardern, Calvin Davies, Nanaya Mahuta, Andrew Little, Michael Wood and Kitty Tapu Allen have all jumped ship. Megan Woods is, as being equivocal about her long-term plans. There's not really a sort of a big brains trust kind of vibe when you read those names, is there? Just sort of trophy kind of probably would have been with National if um, they had more real-world talent. So I I asked uh, Ramesh around uh, Grant Robinson's appointment to Otago University, and of course you brought it up with um, Paul Peter Williams brought it up on Friday because I hadn't quite realised what a repository for former Labour MPs Otago University appears to be. So I mean, yeah, what was it? Claire Curran was on the board. I think David Parker is there. Squealer, I've got to stop calling him Squealer. Robbo is now Vice Chancellor, but also to Materia Tude. She has been a law lecturer there for for many years. So she's a former uh, Green MP who, you know, just happened she to benefit. Benef- shoplifting benefit fraud one Fraud, yeah. Well, I'm so to that end, and we've actually got a list of people that, so Robbo's gone there. Chippy, our Chippy, bless his little heart. He's trying to put a brave face on things, but things are going to get lonely. I mean, his little buddy's gone. His Numbers in the polls are tanking. He's got, you know, I mean, let's face it, you've, you've got Ginny Anderson embarrassing herself and having to retract and apologise. He doesn't have his forklift licence. No, and Jan Tanetta, you know, she's gaslighting up the wazoo. So, I mean, if I were Wee Chipster, I would be updating the CV, just saying. So, and the, and he's not alone. I mean, we've, Nanaya's looking for a job. I mean, Andrew Little is uh, potentially around the of Golras. I mean, she's, you know. The Productivity Commission. And Nana from the Productivity Commission. I said, I thought I would have a look and see, well, can we find them a job? And I thought, well, it makes sense now because it's, you know, if. It's so kind. You know, I know, I know. And this is my short-term kindness. It's turning into medium-term kindness. And I thought I'd jump on to the Human Resources page at Otago University. Interestingly enough, on the website, they still have the University of Otago and the old logo. So they've not updated that yet. Anywho, awesome. 44 job openings. So I thought we could have a little, you know, per- peruse and see if we could find some jobs for, for everybody. I mean, there are some that are that, that I think would work quite well, others not so much. So there's ones a lecturer, a senior law lecturer and associate professor in public law. Have any of them actually got any proper qualifications? Yeah, no. Okay, no, well, they're not going to be that. Oh, no, dentistry, that's no good. Oh, here we go. Teacher Researcher College of Education. Well, maybe you could get rid of um. That could be one for Jan. We could get Jan a job. Oh, program leader in Tairafiti. What are they doing in Tairafiti? What are they Health doing in sciences? Health sciences. Hmm. There we go. Recruitment coordinator. There you go. We could um. He could. We could make Andrew Little a recruitment coordinator. That would be quite interesting. Or specialist financial systems and projects, perhaps. I did see this one. A Pacific liaison officer for Auckland. Actually, if Carmel Cipollone is getting a bit fed up. There you go. Yeah. She could have that. That's a good one for her. Producer uh, brand content. I mean, that would be um, that w- that could be uh, Jacinda herself. Mind you, she's be. she's been employed by Harvard. 
True. She'll probably. They'd, they'd, I think that might pay better. Yeah. yeah. Then nurse, a specialist in marketing. Okay. I used yeah. to do this. Uh, have this bit of a imaginary uh, a horror movie. Sometimes when I used to have to watch Hipkins and Robertson uh, on TV all the time, imagining what sort of survival situation you'd have to be in where you'd choose those two as your leaders. There'd probably be, you know, especially if you were being pursued or something, they'd be squealing and moaning because they'd have blisters and you'd pretty quickly think about eating them. You'd think, oh, well, you know, chip, you'll taste like sausage rolls. and Well, I mean, Robbo's going to taste like a cheese roll fairly shortly. You, I'm sure it's being done there. Uh, the fact that they are leaders is symptomatic of the that thing I've talked about before where we talk about the environmental impact of, of fossil fuels, but what we don't talk about enough, and I'd argue is a far greater problem, is the uh, degradation of the human character from having cheap energy. It's meant that we're awash with cash and energy is cheap, which is, you know, as you say, you need that kind of situation for the woke virus to take place. And it's meant it doesn't really matter who leads us because it's not a survival situation. So we've ended up with these terribly weak leaders who are in turn easily corrupted by things like the World Economic Forum. Mm. It can be stroked along by their ego and a kind of amoral in their own ways. Wow. It's pretty gloomy, yeah. It is pretty but, gloomy. Hey, I think I've got I think I've got I've got a cover. Administrator into university catering. That could keep them in sausage rolls for a bit. Or I mean, it's just so funny imagining them doing a real job, isn't it? I mean I can't really Oh, no, I've got the perfect one. This is the perfect one for, for Chippy. Plumber, because he's certainly given a lot of people the shits lately, and, and then he can go around. You were talking about Munchausen's. There you go. He constipated and, a whole bunch of people. Now he can go around and fix it. I, I don't I don't know. I think it's generous of you to think that uh, it would work. Mind you, I think it's generous to think that Robbo is going to improve the um, academics at Otago. He's, he's going to be primarily focused on showing them where there's some slushy money and leaning on people at the educate, Ministry of Education who owe him a favour. While we're talking about that, I mean, we could talk also about the Productivity Commission being closed down. I thought there was some interesting stuff in that. Absolutely. And again, you know, as you pointed out, this is another facet of their none so of, of the old none so blind as they that will not see. And I think this is Ganesh saying this while the commission is all but gone, the job it was set up to do is not. New Zealand has one of the worst productivity records in the Western world. We work hard, but it takes longer to do things. And I'll just quickly link that back to the big article about Russell Coots, where he said Coots loves New Zealand on the sale GP circuit. The country's rich sailing history, extraordinary talents, and natural environment make it an obvious destination. But he's exasperated at the hoops he must go through to host a leg of the series here. The most complicated country in the world by far, he says. I'm saying on a scale, it's 10 times more complicated than anywhere else in the world. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. it's uh, And again, that's there's just been too much cheap money. It stopped us weeding out bad decisions and bad leaders. No, it just doesn't surprise me at all. But, um, yeah, old Ganesh got a, a bit of a hammering. Old Eric Crampton thought that the best inquiries took place prior, prior to 2020 before Robbo appointed Ganesh. Uh, under Nana, 
there was a sharp change in direction, Crampton says. Areas of inquiry shifted from productivity to include matters like persistent disadvantage that might be more normally considered by the Ministry of Social Development. The incoming government then had a choice. It could try and to rebuild the commission to do the work that a productivity commission should do, or it could end it. You know, Nana did not accept Crampton's view. This reflects a fundamental difference of perspectives. He said, the notion that social outcomes are not connected to or a result of economic performance, policy or activities is at variance with a considerable body of evidence. Yeah, you could say that, but I think uh, Stephen Joyce is on the right track when he is talking about regionalising this stuff. Because the, the the more regionally you go, the less there is that three-year cycle way of thinking because you're looking at someone who lives down the road from you. you you've you got a vested interest in them continuing to improve. So, yeah, it, it sort of seems that there are a few little fingers of dawning understanding coming yeah. into the paper. Well, what's really interesting with that, uh, productivity Commission story. So what happened is the Productivity Commission has been closed down. Now, it was originally created by ACT mm. as a way to actually improve New Zealand's Oh, Rodney Hyde had his... Uh... He had, yes, he was, he, he was sort of part of that. So the, when you have the switch when Ganesh Nana was uh, employed... And both, you know, when I see the comments of both him and Spoonley who are saying, no, you know, this isn't ideological. This is, you know, you need to actually bring in all of these things because the data tells us that. Well, one of the things that we do know is it's very, very easy to cherry pick the data that you wish to follow in order to set a direction, which is obviously what they've gone and done. And, you know, that's fine. But the new coalition obviously have looked at that and in their view to actually cutting back costs have decided, no, we're going to take that money. What was it, $9 billion or something mm. per year that they were being funded? And they're using that money now to set up the new Ministry of Regulation to, to cut through that red tape, ironically, headed by ACT leader David Seymour. <laughs> so, you know, the, things come and go. And productivity, I mean, I remember in the 90s when, and well, you, I know you fled for a bit, but when all our counterparts were sort of fleeing off to the UK um, post-university to do OEs and all that kind of stuff, it was Kiwis were highly sought after because one of the things they loved about New Zealanders was their great work ethic and they rolled their sleeves up and got stuck in and they were natural problem solvers and all of those sorts of things. Can we say that of the 20-somethings of today? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I've said before, you know, those Kiwis who were heading off on those OEs and were uh, sought after were about our age and they'd had their asses kicked by our grandparents who'd survived the Depression in World War II. You know, I'd been given jobs by my grandfather, not paid, straightening out nails because he grew up in the uh, Depression, packing them in on a horse into the mm. Wawika Gorge. So, you know, it was worth straightening them. As I said, when we can just waste things and throw them away because the energy is cheap and money is cheap, it, it does leach away that enterprise and that that um, that drive to think about ways you can cut waste and do things efficiently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, um, the last thing I want to touch on is a story from yesterday and stuff. Fringe radio station that chats with ministers and conspiracy theorists alike was the headline. Yeah. Glenn McConnell. Yeah. And I'm thinking, whoever could he be talking about? 
Well, anyway, well, yes, a reality check radio made the news with stuff. This is the subheading. Coalition MPs have made regular appearances on fringe radio station backed by Voices for Freedom. Is this a good thing? Glenn McConnell looks at the debate. Right. I'm going to flick down to this. this I read this out to Mr. Marie. He had a bit of a spit the tea moment like you did with that other article, asked if he thought his ministers were being used to legitimise the content on Reality Check Radio. Luxon said he wanted them to be available to as many media outlets as possible. You do not want to see groupthink emerge. It's actually very important that interviews happen, he said. Now, let's just park the whopping great thing, ironic groupthink to happen. Yes, Christopher, there's been a lot of groupthink in the last three years. I just thought, yes, that's right. I mean, we we want to talk to everybody and, and we appreciate all government ministers and what were then candidates to come on and, and talk to us. And and I have to admit, there are a lot of invitations that have gone out. We had earlier on Erica Stanford uh, spoke to Peter Williams. Obviously, Winston's been on several times. David Seymour, you know, he had a pretty contentious interview right back at the beginning with Paul, but then he had another more fruitful interview with Rodney on a different topic, and they covered a whole heap of ground. Now, the reality of it is, and this is what we're about at Reality Check Radio, is reality, is that we interview a whole heap of people. It's up to the listeners to decide how much they engage, whether or not they take on board whatever the interviewee is saying, or they may even completely switch off and go, actually, you know what, that's not our jam, moving right along. Or as you said before we got started, or you listen to it if you don't agree with it and think, mm, how do I prepare a counter-argument to that? Oh. This isn't rocket science here, but my favourite quote, my favourite quote, under the sub-headline, have MPs legitimised the station's messages? Seymour and Mitchell said it wasn't for them to comment on other guests featured on RCR. Seymour said it was important for him to debate issues with a variety of audience audiences. He pointed to a previous Stuff article which noted how Seymour had successfully challenged an RCR host around his prejudice towards drag queens. I always intended to raise the standard of debate and I am happy to challenge interviewers, he said. I talk to a wide variety of media outlets, even niche ones like stuff. Having a range of voices in the media can only be a good thing. Actually, here, here, David Seymour. It's interesting that they, I mean, the, the example that they gave about Martin Selner, and I haven't listened to that. You've, you'd listened to it and you said it, you didn't really sort of, you found him a little bit, uh, I, I started a little bit on the nose. Yeah, I started listening to it. Look, to be brutally honest with you, it was, I probably did about 10 or 15 minutes. There were just themes and topics there that didn't sort of necessarily sit with me. However, that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? Like I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not actually engaged in this. So I can do what anybody does and disengage and listen to something something else. So that's that's the absolute beautiful thing. Yeah, it was interesting. The criticism of Martin Selner was in, Ger in Europe, he leads a white nationalist movement. He said he was not racist, but was leading a patriotic activist youth movement. Now, that's to party Māori. <laughs> What's the difference? You know, yeah. it, it's, it said he effectively wanted to deport immigrant communities and to pass law to make life hard for migrants. How often do you see on Facebook debates... Uh, Māori saying, if you don't like it, you can go back. <laughs> go back and live in Europe is a, is a little bit of a, a double standard. There. You know what I, um, just uh, I guess before we close, another thing I looked at was 
war-weary Ukraine looks to expand draft. That's a euphemistic um, headline, isn't it? And no one really thinks about the misery behind that headline. But mobilizing enough soldiers is a problem only Ukraine can solve. Uh, the parliament is considering legislation that would increase the potential pool of recruits by about 400,000, in part by lowering the enlistment age from 27 to 25. But the proposal is highly unpopular, forcing elective officials to grapple with questions that cut to the heart of nationhood. Can they convince enough citizens to sacrifice their lives? And if not, are they willing to accept the alternative? Now, there are almost half a million dead Ukrainians now. And I noted that there was this little tiny uh, article in the in brief in the same paper. Uh, Ukraine President Zelensky has thanked New Zealand for its first con contribution towards Ukraine's defence in nine months. Now New Zealand's coalition government timed the second anniversary of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine with an announcement of $25.9 million in aid and an extension of its military training program. Financial support from Wellington has totaled just over $100 million in the past two years. I know, I saw that. You know, they're going around on buses, grabbing people off the street, sending them to the front lines where their life expectancy is sometimes measured in hours. I'm not arguing, you know, whether the war's right or, or wrong, but I would say if you imagine Ukraine's Mexico and uh, Russia as the U.S., and the U.S. was pushing back against an encroachment by Russia or Russian um, interests into Mexico, I think that um, the New Zealand media is a little bit too rah, rah, rah about dwarfing the sweatshirt good. And again, look. Oh, and we've got bigger fish to fry. Fish to fry. Here. And this is the thing. I'm sorry. You know, it is what's going on. Any war. Doesn't matter. Middle East, Europe. Doesn't matter. Death is death is death, as we said right at the beginning of the show. Every single one of those people that have died in Ukraine, every single one that's died in the Middle East from either side, doesn't matter, Russian, Ukrainian, Gaza, Palestinian, or Jewish, those are families that are all grieving. The dying has got to stop. And the fact that we've contributed $100 million towards it, now they will say, oh, it's to stop the dying. No, that's not going to stop the dying. Yeah, How's that, and, and how is that US stopping the dying? The US uh, giving the Ukrainian forces cluster bomb munitions that are now being uh, shot via artillery into Russian cities. It's obscene. Yeah, you know, and now it's perpetuated this death of half a million people who, as I said, are having to be dragged off the streets by buses to feed into this military industrial yeah. complex, uh, BlackRock, interest serving bloodbath that mm. they've bought on themselves by pushing NATO uh, ever further east. Well, in Sweden now, just joined. So, well, I think it's all over by the shouting. Yeah, World War Three. Yeah. Oh, you God. Fools. Well, I was kind of hoping to finish on a cheery note, but I don't have think you succeeded. Have Have I got something cheery? Well, Paula Bennett, actually, I did have a little thing. It looks like she might be taking a tilt at Wayne's job, do you think? Oh, well, yeah. She's sort of sticking up for the uh, bureaucrats, saying, yeah. it's, don't be mean to them. Yeah, don't be mean. They're just doing their job. They mean I, well. I, I want to be one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did have a little chuckle at that. Right. I think we'd better do it all again next week, eh? Well, yeah. We'll, we'll try and come back cheerier. <laughs> but we live in, uh, we, we're living in, uh, in times that force one to slap their face. Hey, and if you've got anything you want to share with us, 2057 is the text number, inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email. We'll do it all again next week, Pants Marty.
Can't wait. All right, have a great week. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate.